The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and bow our heads in a word of prayer as we get into the word tonight. Heavenly Father, we invite you to become our teacher now. Would you instruct us? Would you give us ears that are ready and open, that are responsive, hearts that are soft? Jesus, would you cause us to be awakened where we've fallen asleep? Would you stir us up? We pray and ask all of these things together in your holy name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. So Colossians chapter 4, hopefully you are there. And tonight, um, the focus of our study will be our words and our speech. That's what the text is all about, which is Fitting, considering you'll spend roughly one-fifth of your life talking. Some of us, maybe, maybe more than that. Some of us are up maybe around 50%. But you're going to spend a lot of your life talking, which is probably why the Bible has so much to say on this topic. When you look at the scriptures, there are literally hundreds of verses that talk about the tongue and our words and our speech and the significance of those things. The book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom regarding the tongue and our words. And so too, the book of James. In fact, when you go all the way back to the very beginning, you'll find that the Bible itself begins with God speaking into the void of nothingness in order to create the heavens and the earth. He didn't just think about what he wanted to do. He could have done it that way. But he literally said, let there be light. And light flowed forth, issued forth out of his mouth at a speed of 186,000 miles per second. So the power of our words. Jesus in John's gospel is even described as the word made flesh. And so again, we see throughout the scriptures the elevation and the importance of our words and our speech. I mean, we have this tendency to think that Ah, they're just words. They're not really any big deal. But our words are much more powerful than we might first think. I remember reading once that for every word that Adolf Hitler wrote in his memoir, Mein Kampf, 125 Jews lost their lives. Knowing how powerful our words can be, the question is, what's the best use for them? And that's what we're going to be talking about again tonight. So pick up with me there in Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. Paul writes, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer everyone. All right, so the text basically breaks itself up into two segments or parts. In the first part, we're going to learn how to talk to God about people and then in the second part, verses 5 and 6, Paul is going to share with us how we then can talk to people about God. So those are the two sections, talking to God about people and then talking to people about God. 
Let's start with that first one. What does it mean to talk to God about people? Well, when we, when we use that language, what we're really talking about is prayer, right? Because prayer, in its essence, is talking to God. You know, we spiritualize it, and we, we make it all of these other things. But in its heart and in its soul, prayer is simply talking to God. Now, can you be a Christian without praying? I don't know. I mean, I suppose it's possible. In the same way that you can be married technically without talking to your spouse. But in both cases, the relationship is going to suffer greatly. Now, when we talk about prayer, we talk about something that, for a lot of us, it's an intimidating subject. For others of us, it's downright frustrating. And then for many, it's confusing. Right? We, we struggle to find the right words, and so we often give up. I read about one woman who invited some people over to dinner one night. At the table, she turned to her six-year-old daughter and asked her if she would like to say the blessing. The girl replied, I wouldn't know what to say. The mom told her, well, just say what you hear mommy say. So the girl said, OK. And she bowed her head and said, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> Getting the words wrong, it happens. Others of us wrestle with this question. I mean, why pray at all, right? If God is sovereign and he's going to do what he's going to do anyways, then I don't really see how me praying about it makes any difference whatsoever. So why should we pray? And the answer, first and foremost, is because God tells us to. God tells us to pray. Let's, let's read this scripture together. This is Matthew chapter 7, verse 7. These are the words of Jesus. And he said this. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Ask, seek, knock. These are imperatives. They are commands. They're not suggestions. Jesus isn't telling us to do this if we feel like it. He's saying, no, 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 I'm commanding you. You need to be asking continually. You need to be knocking continually. And you need to be um, seeking continually. So that's the first reason. God tells us over and over again to pray. But the other reason we ought to pray is this. Prayer changes things. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? First and foremost, the thing that prayer changes is us. It's me. When I pray, my heart is changed. And that might be the best thing about it. right? You can't spend time in the presence of God without having your heart and your mind transformed by his spirit. And essentially, that's what prayer is all about. It's not overcoming God's reluctance, but it's laying hold of his willingness. It's aligning our heart with heaven's heart and positioning ourselves in such a way that we can then receive and walk in the will of God for our lives. But prayer doesn't just change me. It does do that, but it does more than that. Prayer also changes the world around me. One of the more sobering verses in all of the Bible is the one you find in James, chapter 4, verse 2, which, which says this. James says, you have not because you ask not. Now think about what that verse is saying. You have not because you ask not. James is suggesting there that there are things that God longs to do, answers to prayer that he wants to send to us but he's waiting for us to ask him to send those blessings, those answers, and that provision. He's waiting. 
Like there's these vast Amazon warehouses in heaven with all of these answers to prayer. And there are, there's a fulfillment center there. And God's just waiting. Oh, somebody asked. But he waits to be asked. Now, why does he wait? That's a good question. Well, he waits because in his divine sovereignty, God has chosen to do things in partnership with us. He could do it without us, but he's chosen to do it with us in partnership. Like the person who said this, without him, we can't. But without us, he won't. Have you heard that? You see, without him, we're hopeless. But without us, he won't move until we ask. Now, the truth is, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of how this all works, beats me. I've got no answers for you. I don't know why God heals some people and not others. I don't know why God answers some of my prayers right away and then others take years or even decades. I don't know the ins and outs of that stuff. It's way above my pay grade. But what I do know is that God tells me to pray. And the other thing I know is that when I pray, he responds. Like the person who said, I, I don't get it. But for some reason, I feel like when I pray, coincidences happen. And when I don't, they don't. <laughs> I like that. So that's why we pray. But how should we pray? Well, we get some insight into that in our text, where Paul tells us to devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. So according to Paul, our prayers ought to be continual, watchful, and thankful. Let's work our way through each of those. Pray continually, number one. Paul says, devote yourselves to it. He doesn't say dabble in prayer or fiddle with it. We're told to fully and completely immerse ourselves and devote ourselves to the discipline of prayer. In fact, 10 times in the New Testament, we are encouraged as believers to devote ourselves to different things. And of those 10, four of those references are with regards to prayer. Now, when you think about someone who is devoted, you're talking about someone who's dedicated, someone who's persistent, someone who doesn't quit easily or give in or become discouraged. And so it's important that we remind ourselves that this is going to take some devotion, some persistence, because it's easy to become discouraged in prayer. But the payoff is in the persistence. There's a story about a missionary named George Mueller. Great, great guy. I would encourage you to find a biography about him, of which there are many, and you can read about his life. But he was a man who was devoted to prayer. And one of the things he did in the course of his life is he, he took out a piece of paper and he wrote down the names of five personal friends who didn't know Jesus that he longed for them to know the Lord. And he carried this list of friends around with him, and he'd pray for them every time he reached into his pocket and felt the paper. After five years, the first friend on that list came to Christ. 10 years later, another two came to Christ. Another 25 years after that, the fourth man came to Christ. He kept praying for that fifth friend for 52 years, and then he died. But a few months after his death, the fifth friend came to know the Lord. And I see in that a pattern, a model, and a prescription for persistent, devoted prayer. We need to be given as a church to prayer if we want to see God work. Secondly, we're to pray watchfully. 
He says, be watchful. Now, the word watchful that Paul uses is the same word that was used in his day to describe a night watchman or a sentry who would stand at the gates of a city and keep watch over the city during the night. There were day watchmen as well, of course, but during the day, danger can be spotted from a distance, and so um, that job was easy by comparison. The night watchman had to be hypervigilant. He had to be uber-sensitive, and he had to be completely engaged, because that's when the enemy attacked most often. So too, you need to know this. If you devote yourself to prayer, you better get ready for a spiritual battle to ensue. Because when we enter into prayer, we are entering the front lines of the spiritual battle, which is why we need to be sober, we need to be vigilant, we need to be alert, and we need to be watchful. I like the way Peter talked about it in his first epistle. This is what he said. And again, I'd love it if we could read this verse together out loud. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The enemy is out to get us. So be alert. Watch out. Stand your guard. And thirdly, Paul says we're to pray thankfully. And this is just you know, a little bit of seasoning that will add flavor to every prayer. Gratitude is the third characteristic that Paul mentions here. And I've found that this is a great way to kick off your prayer life. If you don't know what to say and you're having trouble getting started, just start by listing out the things that you're thankful for. It's incredible how once you get going into that list, it'll just flow and, and it will give shape to the rest of your prayers. You might even Forget what you came to the Lord in prayer to ask him to work on your behalf in, in the first place. <laughs> you know, so often we just rush into the Lord's presence. OK, God, I need you to do A, B, C, and D. I don't have much time. So if you could get that done before lunch, that'd be great. I'll see you soon. And God says, hold on a minute. Let's spend some time together. Because as you give him thanks, you're reminded of his characteristics and his qualities and his nature. You're reminded that God is big. And we want to pray prayers that reflect the nature of the big God that we serve. You know, you can tell about a person's theology, what they think about God by the size of their prayers. Big, bold prayers honor the big, bold God that we read about in Scripture. And if you pray tiny, puny prayers, it reveals more about you than it does about him. He's still the same yesterday, today, and forever. But when you pray these small, insipid, weak prayers, it reflects your theology and that you only believe in a small God who can't really muster much. So we come to him thankfully. We come to him watchfully. And we pray to him continually. That's how we're to pray. Now let's move on and talk about what we should be praying for, because Paul addresses that for us in verses 3 and 4. He says, pray for us that God would open a door for our message, that we might proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I'm unchanged. And pray for me that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. What should we pray for? A couple of things. First, Paul tells the Colossians to pray for open doors. Pray for open doors. He says, pray for us that God would open a door for the message that we're bringing as we seek to proclaim the mystery of Christ. Now, we've talked about that earlier in our studies in Colossians. When he talks about the mystery of Christ, he's talking about the gospel message, essentially. So he says, 
we really could use a prayer for an open door. You know what an open door is, right? An open door speaks of access. It speaks of divine favor. When you are walking through open doors, you're walking through doors of opportunity. I mean, who wouldn't want that? <laughs> what a beautiful thing to pray for. God, would you just open doors for me and my life, for this church and our ministry? In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he wrote about some of the doors that God was opening for him and for his team there. And, and he said this. This is 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9. Again, let's read it out loud together. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. God was moving powerfully in the city of Corinth, where Paul was ministering. People were getting saved left and right. And that's what it's like when there's an open door for ministry. People's hearts are soft. The ears are open. The hearts are engaged. And people get saved. Miracles happen. And that's what was going on in the city of Corinth. But notice how Paul is quick to point out that along with those open doors of opportunity came some adversaries and some opposition. Something worth noting is this. Wherever and whenever the Spirit of God sets out to do a work, the enemy rises up and sets out to oppose that work. By the way, God is doing a great work here in San Diego. He's doing a great work in Maranatha Chapel. And so there are doors of opportunity that are opening for us. But at the same time, there is opposition from the enemy. Some of you are like, man, I would love an open door. I feel like all I come up against are closed doors. Anybody know what that feels like? I mean, it's great when the doors are opening all around you, but that's not always how it goes in ministry. Sometimes God closes a door. Paul knew firsthand the frustration of walking up and coming up against closed doors as well. Acts chapter 16 talks about how when he took off on his second missionary journey with Silas and Timothy along with him, how they kept finding the ways that they were trying to go blocked by the Holy Spirit. Now, we're not told in the scripture how the Spirit forbade them from going to this city or from embarking on a journey to go to this place. All we're told is that the doors kept closing all around them. Eventually, they found themselves hemmed in by the, the sea before them and closed doors all around them. They were, they were stuck. And so it was in that place where they felt stuck with closed doors all around them that the Lord was finally able to speak to Paul. And I wonder if there isn't anyone in here who can relate to that, where all you're seeing and all you're experiencing are closed doors and you keep knocking and you keep trying all of the handles, what should you do in a circumstance like that? Well, our tendency would be to want to grab a chainsaw, right? <laughs> Chop down the door. Perhaps you'd want to go, I don't know, Bruce Lee and kick the door down or karate chop the door down or just wait at the door. What should you do? But let me encourage you to take a note out of the Apostle Paul's book. And instead of doing those things and trying to kick down the door, perhaps you should pray. It could be that the timing isn't quite right for the particular door you're waiting at to open. And God's waiting to prepare your purpose for you. And he's, he's trying to prepare you for your purpose at the same time. And that's why the door is an opening. Another option is that God might want to open another door. Have you ever heard this saying? Whenever God closes one door, he opens a window. <laughs> he opens another door. 
And that's what the Lord did with Paul and his companions. He was closing those doors where they were trying to go because he wanted to send them to the city of Philippi. And so he gave Paul a vision in the night of a Macedonian man crying out, saying, come and help us. And so they took it as a sign from the Lord. And they went there. And the doors were opened. And God moved miraculously there in the city of Philippi. And a beautiful church was born. We have a letter. The book of Philippians is a letter that Paul wrote to the church that was ultimately started because of a closed door in other places. I have a personal friend who I was praying for down front several months back now. Actually, it was more than a year ago now. And I just felt this, the leading of the Spirit as I was praying over her. And I, I felt the Lord prompting me to tell her, you know, you're standing at this, this one door, but I, I see another door that God wants to lead you into. And it's an open door. And when you walk through it, it's going to be beautiful. And there's just, it's like verdant fields. It's just, it's a beautiful scene that I'm picturing in my mind and seeing in my spirit. And, and it's not a door you were even expecting, but Pay attention to that. And I said, I don't know. That's what the, the picture that the Lord gave me for you. And you can take it to him in prayer and see if it resonates. Well, six months after that, the girl I was praying for, she, she moved on from the relationship that had seemed to be going nowhere. And she met a new guy. And she got engaged to him. And now they're married. And, and it was a new door that God was leading her into. All that to say this, whatever closed doors of, that are very frustrating that you find yourselves in. I want to be in ministry. I want to serve here. I want to go there. I want to move to this place. Whatever it is, wait, pray, ask the Lord for direction. Don't kick down the door. Wait on the Lord's timing. I promise you, it'll be worth it. So we, we pray for open doors. The other thing that Paul says, will you pray for this? He, is, he says, pray for me. So we're encouraged here to pray for ourselves. Now, I realize in saying that, some, some people think that to pray, ask for prayer for myself, that's, that's a pretty selfish thing. Maybe you feel like your problems are too trivial and nobody would really care to hear about them. Or maybe you feel like if I ask for prayer, that admits weakness on my part, like I can't handle it on my own. Well, guess what? You can't, which is why God has given us each other. It's also why he's given us prayer. Paul wasn't embarrassed or ashamed or too important to ask for prayer. And, and neither should you be. We all need help wherever we can get it. And if we can bring the Lord into one another's situations through prayer, then praise the Lord for that. Specifically, as we look at Paul's request, he says, pray for me that I'll be able to, to present the gospel message clearly. He was asking them to pray that he would be a better preacher. And can I just say amen to that? You know, some of you are here tonight and you're like, I don't know, this is kind of boring. Let me just encourage you. You need to be praying for my preaching. Because if you prayed better prayers, then I would preach better sermons, OK? That's, that's in the Bible. So that's on you. Deal with it between you and the Lord. There's a lot of prayer going up right now. I, be, I, I feel it. It's just ascending. <laughs> My goal, whenever I stand on this platform and get behind this pulpit, my goal is, is to lead you to Jesus. And my goal is, is to do so in a way that is, is clear, practical, where there's, there's, there's no ambiguity. 
Some preachers try to impress people with their knowledge, and I used to be one of those preachers. I wanted to impress people how much I knew about the historicity of this or that or the Greek syntax and the structure of X, Y, and Z and the places. And man, now I just want to grab hold of your heart and, and bring it to Jesus. I try to be as clear as possible. The preaching, even the best preaching, isn't enough in and of itself. It's prayer coupled with the proclamation of the word that empowers it to be effective in the hearts and in the minds and in the ears of those to whom that message is being proclaimed. And so I, I, I encourage you to pray as you come into this sanctuary and know this, that before you get here, there are people that are praying over this service. There are people that are praying over the weekend's services. Then we have a team of people that pray throughout the course of our services, and they're just waging war in the spiritual realm. I love knowing that. It just gives me so much confidence knowing that there are people that are praying right now. And I never tire of people telling me, you know, I'm praying for you. Praise the Lord for that. We need their prayers. I need their prayers as your pastor. Please pray for me. But the interesting thing to note about Paul's specific request is he's saying, pray for me that I'll preach more clearly. And here's why that's interesting. Paul's in prison when he writes that. <laughs> he's in prison. So I'm wondering, who are you asking to preach more clearly to? I guess it would have to be his jailers, wouldn't it? Paul doesn't ask us or ask the Colossian believers, rather, to pray that he would be sprung, that he would find a great defense attorney, <laughs> that he would find the Johnny Cochran of his time, they would get the case thrown out in court. No, he says, pray for me that I can preach more clearly, because, man, I've got two roaming guards that are chained to me 24 hours a day. It's a captive audience. I want to give Jesus to them. Man, what do you do with a guy like that? I love Paul. Let him loose. And he turns the world upside down for Jesus. Put him in chains, and he'll lead the guards to faith in Christ. Put him to death, and you'll make him happiest of all. Why? Because Paul said, hey, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Now, when you, you, you come to the book of Philippians, which I mentioned earlier, you get some evidence that God actually answered the Colossian believer's prayer request for Paul to preach clearly to the guards that were chained to him. You see, there in the first chapter of Philippians, Paul writes about how his chains had actually helped to advance the gospel. And then he says this. And again, let's read it out loud together just to grab your attention. Read it with me. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Notice Paul says, it's clear. It's clear to everyone why I'm here. It's because of Jesus. So we talk to God about the people we want to minister to. And then in verses 5 and 6, Paul talk, he flips the script and begins to talk about what it looks like to talk to people about the God we serve. Let's go ahead and reread those verses. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity and let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you might know how to answer everyone. All right, so the emphasis here is, is on our attitude towards outsiders. When we talk about outsiders, Paul uses that term to describe those who are outside 
the faith. They're not believers in Jesus yet. And I always like to add yet, because they're on their way. They're just in process. But as of this moment, they're outside the faith. They're outside the promises. They're outside the boundary lines of the kingdom. And Paul's desire, of course, was that they be brought in. And that's our heart as well. We want to see as many added to the roll call of heaven as possible. So the question for us is, how do you do that? And here's the answer. Once again, it comes back to prayer. Start with prayer. If you have a heart for evangelism, if you want to see people come to know Jesus, start with prayer. We shouldn't even think about talking to people about God until we first talk to God about those very people. I think the order is essential, which is why it starts with prayer first. You see, in John's gospel, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said this. Let's read this together out loud. This is Matthew chapter 9, sorry, not John. Matthew chapter 9, verses 37 and 38. He said this, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. Ask him to send more workers into his fields. Listen to what Jesus is saying. The harvest is plentiful. The grain is ripe. It's ready to be picked. So what should you do? Grab the sickle, get the, get the, the bales, and let's go. No, no, no. He says, so pray. Start with prayer and ask the Lord to equip workers to be sent into the fields. You know, it's interesting when you look at the early church, which is a model for us in so many areas, so too with this area of prayer. Prior to the day of Pentecost, which was the first birthday of the church, and that's what really got the ball rolling. Prior to that, I find it noteworthy and significant that Peter and James and John and the other disciples, that there were about 120 of them, that they gathered together in an upper room, and they prayed and they fasted for 10 days. And it was after that, after they had prayed and fasted for 10 days, that the spirit gets poured out. There's a mighty rushing wind, and fire falls from heaven. And Peter stands up, and he preaches for 10 minutes. And as a result of that sermon, 3,000 people get saved. And off and running goes the church. How different that is from the modern church. We're apt to do the opposite. We preach for 10 days. Pray for 10 minutes and wonder why nobody responds. We have to be devoted to prayer. We need to be a church who prays if we want to see the Lord move and people respond. But once you've prayed, what else can you do? And that's where Paul's instructions become really practical for us. The first thing he tells us is live a godly life. Don't ever discount or underestimate the power of a godly life. Do everything that you can to make sure that your walk and your talk align with one another. You see, a lot of Christians ruin their witness before they ever even open their mouths. Why? Because their, their walk or the way that they live, it denies what they profess to believe with their lips. We, saw, we call such people hypocrites. A hypocrite in the ancient Roman world was somebody who wore different masks in the course of a play. But we should find consistency between our words and our lives. One preacher said it like this. You should live in such a way that you wouldn't be afraid to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. <laughs> I like that. Strive for authenticity. Be the same behind closed doors that you are out in public. 
Think about it like this. I heard a, my youth pastor say this to me years, decades ago. What if you were put on trial for being a Christian? And there is the prosecuting attorney, and, and you're there, and you're behind the, the uh, podium or whatever, and you're on trial for being a Christian. What evidence would that prosecuting attorney be able to point the jury to to convict you of being a Christian? Would there be enough evidence to convict? Paul says, walk wisely before outsiders in the way that you act. Let it be known that you're a follower of Jesus just by the virtue of your walk. I love the story of Daniel in the Bible, who they basically did hire investigating attorneys, private investigators to follow him around. And at the end of the time, all they could come up with is, man, the guy prays a lot. So if we come up with a rule that outlaws praying, we got him. Outside of that, though, we're sunk. (laughs) That'd be great. The next thing that Paul says is make the most of every opportunity. Make the most of every opportunity. That's a phrase that he borrows from the marketplace. The idea is that you should be looking to take advantage of those opportunities that present themselves. In other words, Paul's saying, learn how to be a bargain shopper. How many of you, you go into the store, and you've got your little coupon book, and you're beep, beep, you're saving all kinds of money, and then you see, oh, man, mayonnaise is on sale, so you buy all the mayonnaise in the store. <laughs> That's what Paul says we ought to be like with regards to the gospel. When, when you're talking to someone, and in the course of normal conversation, you sense in your spirit that God is leading the conversation into a spiritual dimension or realm. You know what this feels like? This happens to all of us. And oftentimes, we just brush it off, like, I don't want to go there. I don't want to intimidate them. No, no. Tune in. Pay attention. and and seize that opportunity. Buy up those opportunities. Those are divinely orchestrated appointments that weren't on your calendar or this stranger's calendar or whoever it may be. But it's something that God has set up for you to share the gospel, to share his love with a world that desperately needs it. And then the last thing that Paul says is, and make sure you watch your words. We see this in verse 6 where he says, and let your conversation be full of grace and seasoned with salt so that you might know how to answer everyone. In the ancient world, salt was used as a preservative. And so they didn't have refrigerators, and they would salt the meat, and that would help keep it. And it was also, like today, back then it was used as a seasoning. It added flavor. And then a third use of salt in the Old Testament, we find in Leviticus specifically, that salt was to be added to a number of sacrifices. Interesting. Add salt to your sacrifice. Why? I think it was foreshadowing and picturing for us what it means to offer the sacrifice of praise that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And how do we do that? By adding the flavor of heaven to our speech, allowing the preserving influence of the kingdom of light infiltrate and and, and infuse our daily conversations so that we have that kind of impact. And when we do that, when our words and our works align in that way, our witness becomes powerful. See, Jesus said you should let your works so shine before men that they see your good deeds and they glorify your Father in heaven. Man, it's a beautiful thing when someone can just tell you're a Christian before they've even heard you open your mouth just by the way you live your life. 
then people will start to ask. And that's the insinuation here at the end of verse 6. He goes, so that you'll know how to answer people, everyone. And the idea there is that people are going to be asking questions. They're going to want to know, where do you get this hope? The world's falling apart, but you seem to have a peace. Where does that come from? Like, where does your joy come from? Why are you always talking about Jesus? Tell me about how your family is sticking together when all these families are falling apart. And tell me why you work so hard. I mean, why don't you cut corners and take advantage of the opportunities to just slide by? You're always diligent. And you're here, and you clock out at 5, and you come in at 9, or whatever the case may be. And, and they're going to ask questions, according to Paul, if we live our lives the way we ought to be living it. And that gives us the platform to then begin to speak. It is our lives that provide the platform. One more thing about our words. I like this psalm, Psalm 141, verse 3. This isn't in your notes. But he prays, set a guard over my mouth, O Lord. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I think we can all say amen to that one. (laughs) Set a guard over my mouth, Lord. Help me to live for you. Help me to walk with you. Help me to my conversation and my conduct, my words and my work. Let my my conversation with men about you and my conversation to you about men all bring people to Jesus. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.